CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. I think I just heard myself say, we're on. My microphone is open. I'm Bill Nygut. This is Political Rewind. We're glad to have all of you with us today. Greg Bluestein, uh, political reporter for the AJC, is in the studio today. If you're watching us on Facebook Live, which you can do by going to the the GPB news page on Facebook, he's sitting to my left, Greg. Busy, busy times for you. The legislature's down to the final, what, three days, I think? Three days left. We're in the final countdown, and tomorrow's going to be a big one. Yeah, we're going to talk about why that's a big one uh, and about some of the most important bills they've got remaining in the days ahead. Uh, Across from me in the studio today, Melita Easters. She is the founder and director of the Georgia Win List, which recruits Democratic uh, pro-choice women to run for office. And Melita I said before the show went on, I think you've probably, and I've had heard people like Julianne Thompson, the Republican, credit you with this, have probably recruited more women to run for office in Georgia than just about anybody else out there. We think so. There are 44 win-list-endorsed women currently serving. Thank you for having me on. Sure. Um, and Mayor Rusty Paul from Sandy Springs is back with us today. Rusty, he's been ma- he's mayor of Sandy Springs, but he was chairman of the Georgia State Republican Party. He worked for Jack Kemp when Jack Kemp was both secretary of uh, housing and urban development, worked on Jack Kemp's presidential campaign. Rusty, we love having you on the show. Well, Thanks thank for being here. Thank you for having here. me back. And in Washington... Uh, Kyle Hayes, the founder uh, of Peach Pod, and uh, one of the voices you hear, if you go to that podcast, Peach Pod, it's a terrific podcast. Kyle, welcome. You're in our NPR studios in Washington. Thank you. We appreciate the kind words. What's your? What do you have up right now? I didn't get a chance to look before we went on the air. Um, so last week we talked about the reemergence of the education savings accounts bills, um, and then we're going to talk this week with Kyle Renato. He's the first announced candidate challenging Ed Setzler, uh, the main sponsor of the heartbeat bill that's made a lot of headlines this session. So we're going to have that discussion for you on Friday. All right. So when you go to your podcast, to the place wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever, any, anywhere else, while you're downloading and subscribing to the um Political Rewind podcast, why don't you subscribe to Peach Pod at the same time? Okay? Fair enough, Kyle? Thanks, Bill. Appreciate right. it. <laughs> hey, uh, before we actually get into the uh, the meat of the show, I just want to do a quick shout-out. I think of myself as being fairly up to speed on what's happening politically in the world, but it was only yesterday that I learned about a big event in the life of one of our frequent panelists on Political Rewind. On March 16th, Stacey Evans uh, gave birth to her son, John Jack Patrick Evans. He was uh, he weighed eight pounds when he was born. Uh, Stacy promises to send a photograph, but we always enjoy having Stacy on the show. So a shout out to you, congratulations, Evans family on the new baby. The last time she was here, she was, she was very pregnant. Very pregnant. <laughs> well, and remember the last time she had a baby, she was back in her her pre-pregnant suits within like a week. She, it's funny that you say that, Melita, because I said to Stacy, Stacy, how long? Do you want to take before we invite you to come back in for the show? She said not very long, and she reminded me that they were in session during the birth of her first child. She went back into the session a week after the baby <laughs> was a born, and she delivered testimony via video uh, on an abortion, on an abortion bill. bill. Okay, well, we're going to talk about all of that and a lot more. We're going to talk about the abortion bill, but Greg, let's start with the news of literally the hour at two o'clock. Governor Kemp was scheduled to sign what he calls the Patients First Act. This is a measure, will you explain what it does? Because it returns power to the governor that had been taken away by the legislature a number of years ago. Back in 2014, when Governor Deal was running for re-elect, this is a big deal. Um, This gives him broad authority to pursue two different waivers. Uh, One could set up a limited expansion of Medicaid or could even end up curtailing Medicaid um, funds. Uh, and that's getting most of the attention because it's, it, it, it tackles a controversial topic. The other one is an Affordable Care Act waiver, and it essentially lets the state, it could let the state set up a fund um, that, would, that would stabilize, that would look to prop up 
um, private insurance premiums that you that, that people get through the Affordable Care Act um, healthcare market. But this is a expansion of the governor's power. It restores 2014 powers, but it also could even go beyond that because it gives him final say over over healthcare waivers that can have tremendous impact on how hundreds of thousands of Georgians get their medical coverage and also how tens of millions of dollars in, in federal funds are spent. Yeah, Melita, it is interesting that in 2014, when Republicans who controlled the legislature then, as they do now, were not certain whether uh, Jason Carter might beat Nathan Deal in his reelection bid, they decided, uh-oh, if Carter wins, we may be in trouble <laughs> because the governor has the power to des- decide on whether to expand Medicaid. So they passed a bill giving themselves the power to control that. Uh, now, it's back in the hands of Brian Kemp. Well, I think they've seen that some of them might not always win re-election. Wait, tell me more. Say more. In other words, <laughs> when, you, when you flip as many seats as the Democrats flipped in this last election cycle, the legislature has to see some of the handwriting on the wall for the next election cycle. Oh, okay. So, Rusty, that's interesting. Um, I get that. Uh, but I also think they feel more confident if it's in the hands of a Republican governor, although, of course, in 2022... They may be regretting they did this. This is why the legislature meets every year. <laughs> if they did something they didn't like last year, they'll change it next year. Is this year. grandfather? Well, this gives him a, a, a brief window. I mean, it, oh. it gives him through 2020. Um, oh, I did. To, thank you. Yeah, so, so it cuts it off, but it, but it also gives him, not the legislature, the final say over what this will be. Right. So that's the that's where the rub is. It, it, it expands his power, limits it to 20 through 2020, but gives him broad discretion over which path, uh, which path to pursue as long as it doesn't end up being in a full expansion of Medicaid, which he said is, is a non-starter. So, so Kyle, um, one of the reasons you have to say that this is a victory for Kemp is, number one, he's accomplished it very early in the session. There were no changes to the bill. Uh, he promised this on the campaign trail. Uh, he said limited expansion of Medicaid, maybe. Uh, he definitely said he wanted to find subsidies for people who buy their insurance on the Obamacare exchanges who uh, could use the help. So it's a victory for him. But, Kyle, what about the political downside? There are many Democrats who think, and Stacey Abrams argued throughout her campaign, we don't need a limited expansion of Medicaid. We need to go all out for expansion. Well, I think the limited or the political downside potentially comes within the policy details of what gets decided. And right now there is no guarantee about a coverage expansion in the Medicaid waiver. And there's also no, no guarantee that an ACA waiver will look like the ACA waiver that he described on the campaign trail. So there's a lot still be to be determined about this issue. And I found it really notable that on the floor of the House the other day, the governor's floor leader who was uh, testifying on the bill, she wouldn't commit to an actual expansion of Medicaid. She kept saying that we're not focused on an insurance card, we're focused on health insurance and health care. And so I think that Democrats are right to be asking some serious questions about what this effort is going to entail, especially because the say of the legislature is now done. Um, Alita, uh, the polling that we've talked about in the show from the AJC uh, shows that 70% of the people in this state support a full expansion of Medicaid. Uh, If that does not happen, and Kyle's right to remind us that we're not quite sure what the waiver is that the governor's going to ask for in that respect, uh, do you see this as an issue that Democrats are going to be able to use in 2020 against legislators who supported this measure? Absolutely. And particularly in the ruby-red Republican rural areas of the state where health care is far more precarious than the fortunate coverage we have in the in the Atlanta metro area. We're blessed with hospitals and vibrant choices for the kind of care we choose to seek. And in the rural areas, there's so many places where it takes 20 minutes for the ambulance to get there and the closest hospital is an hour and a half away. Yeah. So health care is a big issue in areas that have traditionally voted Republican. Rusty? Well, everybody's assuming that he's not going to do anything right, and uh, we don't know what the details are, but he's got some good people who know what they're doing. I mean, for example, one of his one of his advisors has been former uh, HHS Secretary Tom Price, who's been at the table and, and, and understands the federal system 
uh, fairly well. I think that one of the great things about our system of government is states become lab- we, we've always used the term laboratories of democracy. Healthcare and education currently consume about 85% of the state budget. It's crowding out all other aspects of, uh, of spending, social services, everything else. And unless we get some controls over the growth of spending in health care, uh, it's going to bankrupt everybody. So I, th- I think that there's the opportunity to do some things creatively is where the governor's going, and I'm hoping he'll find some creative solutions. Here's the kind of the rub politically, too, is that most of the people grumbling either privately or publicly about this bill, including some Republicans, were worried that this abdicates, this gives the, the, the governor far too much power without any legislative oversight. And it is a very complicated behind-the-scenes process, involves hiring a consultant to craft a plan, negotiating with health officials and politicians, looking over statistical data, uh, and navigating the bureaucracy of Washington before you even, you know, submit the waiver. And then there's no guarantee that even given Kemp's close ties with President Trump, that it'll be approved. What he's promised to do is not to be a lone ranger. Those are his words. He's not going to be a lone ranger. He's going he's gonna to be transparent. But that's where the rubber meets the road. We'll see how transparent he'll be in this process because it is so important. And this is one of the singular biggest acts of his of his first term as governor. This could really help define um, his first term, depending on which way he goes on this. So, OK, of course, Kyle, here's what's also interesting about the timing of this, though. Um, the window may be closing. I don't know how quickly, but if President Trump... Is saying now that his Justice Department will not defend any aspect of the Affordable Care Act in the federal uh, courts, uh, and that that the entire act could end up uh, being overturned. It, it, there are going to be a lot of people, Democrats certainly, who are going to say, Democrats are going to say, well, we missed a golden opportunity to expand Medicaid for all under Obamacare. Republicans might say, hey, we warned you for a long time that federal money for Medicaid could be cut off. I'm not quite sure I understand the implications of what the the administration saying we're not going to defend Obamacare could be for this whole thing. Yeah, I'm not really quite sure either. And I, I don't think there's a lot of clarity on this issue at all, because a, a court case that overturns the ACA would not, there would not be a replacement on deck right away, and you have a divided Congress that would then have to tackle that issue. Oh, great. I think another way in which the window is closing is that the Trump administration is currently approving policies like work requirements and Medicaid that future administrations of another party may not uphold. And so it'll be interesting to see if an, an agreement struck under the Trump administration has long-term success if another administration doesn't agree with the policies that end up getting put in place. All right. Well, the governor has signed this bill. We're going to watch how it unfolds uh, in the uh, days and weeks ahead and and see uh, just what happens both here in Georgia and then what happens to ACA as the Trump administration backs away from defending it in the courts. Uh, Let's move on. Greg, uh, (laughs) I feel like, like I'm not the only one who has been saying this. But I do feel somewhat justified in the fact that for several weeks now, I've been saying, when you have a bill as hot, <laughs> as controversial, as essentially outlawing abortion, wouldn't you want, if you're behind this bill, to get this thing passed as quickly as possible to avoid uh, the kind of crowds of people who were coming in to lobby for and against the measure? It was the way Roy Barnes tried to handle the flag change back in uh, 2001, I mm-hmm. think. Uh and yet this thing has lingered, and now the sponsor, Ed Setzler, has told you, gee, I'm a little worried. Uh, people are starting, Republicans who've supported it are starting to get a little nervous, so it's coming to the floor We believe it's coming tomorrow? to the floor tomorrow. Okay. Everyone, including Setzler, has indicated that it will be on the floor tomorrow. Um, which And this won't be a long, drawn-out debate like the first two votes, because this is basically <laughs> a decision to agree or disagree yeah. on the Senate version. The Senate has passed its version. They've already had their debate. The House had its previous version. So this could be a 15, 20 minute issue. But the big thing we're watching is, remember, this passed 93-73. So that gives it a two vote margin. A bill in the House has to pass with 91 votes. So there's a two vote cushion here. And if any number of those, if just a handful of those supporters either walk, 17 took a walk, 17 did not vote in the original um, debate. So if any of them take a walk or switch their votes or are out sick or you name it, uh, this could be a whole new ballgame. Rusty, 
We got to talk to you about this. You're right in the heart of territory <laughs> where this is a very dangerous vote for Republican incumbents. It is. And it, this is one of those issues. And in most political issues, there's generally some middle ground you can find that can make both sides reasonably satisfied. This is one of those zero sum issues where it's either you for it or against it. And there's no ability to compromise. There's no middle ground. And what what. Representative Setzler did uh, to get, I think, some moderate Republican votes. He put the three exceptions in, rape, incest, and the physical health of the mother. In doing that, he created a dilemma, because once you make one set of exemptions, then where do you draw that line? And that's what Georgia Right to Life is telling its folks, is these exemptions don't go far enough. Now, the question is, will those folks on the right, the Georgia Right to Life and, and, and other folks who agree with them, are they willing to kill this bill in order to make the point, or will they support it? And and that will be the tale of the tape tomorrow. Yeah, Melita, I mean, Georgia Right to Life could offer some members who don't want to vote against it because they f- worry about primary challenges, Republican primary challenges. It could give them cover mm-hmm. should they choose to vote against it this time, which in the long run works to the advantage of people like you who have worked to support choice your entire career. Absolutely. And the, the other thing is, once this vote takes place and the governor signs the bill and, and then it heads straight to a federal court, and while it winds its way through the federal court system, you have the 2020 election process to elect more pro-choice Democrats who will rescind the legislation. So let me ask you about that, because I, I, Rusty's the right person to go to in terms of suburban Republican incumbents. What about you in your work? How can you already start uh, going out there recruiting women? We already are. Okay. And what kind of response are you getting? Women are the angriest I have ever seen them. Women are signing up for our trainings. Women are giving money. And women are women who who they send you little emails that say, I've never thought about running for office, but this has made me so mad. I'm thinking about it now. Where do I start? And in some sense, the damage is already done because both chambers have already voted um, two Republicans in the House voted against it. Um, in the Senate, it was a party line vote as far as absolute party, party gender line vote. line vote. And then, by the way, in the House, one Democrat voted for it, a Mac Jackson. Um, but in the other sense, if this, if if Governor Kemp and his supporters end up failing on this, this is rebuke to the governor, the governor as well, in a way that he put all his, a lot of his political capital behind this. I mean, he had a, a unequivocal support for it the day of crossover day when before he supported that that trigger bill. So they can't afford not to to kind of let this uh, 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 linger on the vine there. Kyle, we've. Well, Go ahead, Melita, and then we'll, well get Kyle Well, I was just going to say that this bill has economic development um, implications, and it certainly is a bill that the medical community has unified against because there are parts of the bill that are vague and poorly written. So uh, we do have uh, uh, an economic—I uh, I, I was going to say some economic impact. We have the threat— of economic uh, uh, impacts from the Writers Guild of America, which put out a release, Greg, uh, just read a little of it. The Writers Guild of America East and West condemn the passage of HB 481. Uh, it's a draconian anti-choice measure that would, in essence, constitute a statewide ban. We know that. Uh, and they go on to say this law would make Georgia an inhospitable place for those in the film and television industry to work, uh, blah, blah. Uh, so they're one of the few in business groups that have really come out publicly. But we've talked about this in the past. Um, this isn't—here's the question. When you're getting the kind of tax breaks yeah. that the entertainment industry gets for coming into Georgia, uh, even with Alyssa Milano out there trying to get the industry to turn its back on Georgia— that's going to outweigh almost any social issue except maybe RIFRA for whatever reason. And I find that odd, too. So, uh, yeah, uh, Georgia held a film day last week on a Tuesday, and we examined that question. Uh, Jennifer Brett, one of my colleagues, and I went around. We asked a lot of film studio executives that very question. Why, why is RIFRA exploding into outrage every time there, there's a RIFRA bill, but 
But uh, so other social issues like abortion, um, not only does the film industry, but Metro Atlanta Chamber, other business groups, the same companies that, that, that vented their anger about the Riffer bill have been silent on this bill, including the Fortune 500 companies like Delta, um, UPS, Home Depot, you name it, who all came out in opposition to RIFRA. And they were studiously silent. They said essentially either no comment or we're going to let this issue stand, speak for itself. But now we've got the film industry saying, uh, no studios have said this, but at least the film, the unions have said they're raising a question about it. Well, it, the the writers, if there's one aspect of the of the movie business that's not in Georgia, it's the writers. They're yeah. still in Los Angeles. Yeah, that's right. If it had come from the producers, the directors, or more importantly, the accountants, uh, then I would be a little bit more concerned about what that would do for the film industry. Is it going to make them happy? Heck no. But uh, your point about the cost benefit of operating in Georgia today, I think, is going to be a much more important factor in whether the movie industry continues to come to the state. Kyle, let me ask you, and then Melita, I really want your take on this. Why why is it that uh, the business community, for the most part, has remained silent, and yet they get very exorcised about RIFRA? Is is it a gender thing? Is it some uh, lack of respect or understanding for women's oriented issue. I, Kyle, I find this very puzzling. I think one of the issues at play here is that the effect would not be immediate. And so it's important, I think, to look at the long-term economic development consequences of this bill. If its proponents are ultimately successful and then they succeed in the Supreme Court, not only would abortion become illegal in Georgia, but it would probably become illegal in many of our neighboring states. And an entire region of the country would have a completely different health care policy on reproductive health issues than many other big states like California, New York, and Massachusetts. And so in the long run, when you're looking at companies that one day will be founded as small businesses or corporate relocations that one day could happen, those businesses may start choosing a state like Virginia or California over us if they can't get the workforce to come and live here if people, particularly women, don't agree with the, the restrictions on abortion. Melita? Well, I was at a briefing about this whole subject earlier today, and abortion has always lagged behind issues like LGBTQ issues in the progressive marketplace for fundraising and acceptability. So even businesses that are willing to be out on the cutting edge about LGBTQ issues have never been on the cutting edge of the abortion issue. So abortion, I can say this since I have red hair, has always been sort of the redheaded <laughs> stepchild of progressive and issues. And is that because it is such a difficult issue for people to wrap their heads around? I think it's because it's a difficult issue for people to wrap their heads around, and it's also an issue which only affects women. All right, let's do this. Um, Let's get our first break out of the show out of the way. We will look to see if the abortion bill is on the calendar for an agree or disagree. By that, we mean the Senate made changes in the bill when they voted on it uh, after the House had passed it out. And so it comes back to the House. There will not be what we call a conference committee where there's going to be a lot of headbutting over what should be in the bill. It's just up to the House now to vote yes or no to agreeing to the Senate's changes in that we think could come as soon as tomorrow. Fairly said, everybody? Mm -hmm. Yes, but it doesn't have to go on the calendar. It can just come Ah, with Ed walking down and making a speech from the well. That is such an important point. It means that it doesn't have to go back to the rules committee Committee. where people could try to block it from being put on. Thank you for making that important point. All right, this is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. Women candidates are used to having to answer for their gender. Now men running in 2020 are having to answer for theirs, too. As we sort of disrupt the masculine dominance in the presidency, it also means that those who are auditioning to hold the role 
have to think differently about how they present themselves in terms of gender. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. It's 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. We're back uh, for Political Rewind. I, I, you know, I do try to pay attention to what you all are saying on the uh, Facebook Live posts. And it's really lovely to see all of you sending your best wishes to Stacey Evans. <laughs> Thank you all, you listeners out there, uh, for doing that. Uh, Stacey's already sent me a note saying, I'm ready to come back already. So <laughs> we'll see. Uh, let's go through a couple of issues relatively quickly. Greg, uh uh, Chuck F. Stration, Republican representative, had pretty high hopes for finally this session being able to pass a hate crimes bill, which would protect uh, uh, lots of minority uh, groups in the state of Georgia, not by suppressing free speech, but by essentially adding a sentencing uh, feature uh, an enhanced penalty after someone had been found guilty of a particular crime. It's always been held back because for many years, legislators have refused to add a protection for the LBGTQ community. We thought this year was the year it was going to change. No way. Yeah, and this year they added that provision in. Yep. It passed the House the same day as that heartbeat bill passed. It was kind of a, you know, an interesting uh, contrast that day with all the voting on on two hyperpartisan issues. Um, and again, this was law way back in, in, in 2000. It got struck down by the Georgia Supreme for Court. For not being specific. For not being specific. Uh, now Georgia is one, one of just four or five states five. that don't have this law. Yep. Um, and it looks like it's going to stall again. It's already passed the House, so next year it just has to pass the Senate. But the Senate uh, committee chairman... Um, in the judiciary, Jesse Stone said he needed a little bit more time to assess that. Well, yeah, I, I talked to uh, Representative Stration this week about it, and uh, he says it's dead. And and there is a philosophical divide here. I mean, there's there are people who believe that the motivation behind an act is what's important and you should be penalized for why you did something. There are other folks down there who have legitimate, and I'm a supporter of hate crimes, so let me say this. There are people down there who have legitimate positions that you shouldn't look at the motivation, you should punish the act. And so, therefore, by uh, it, it's really a, a law enforcement and a philosophical division but the, the, uh, but uh, there are some extraneous well, issues that are involved as well. Too. Well, I'll that's what that. I wanted to pick yeah. up on, Kyle. I mean, obviously, Rusty does make a point. There are those who argue that uh, punishing someone for a crime is enough. They've committed a crime. They should be punished for it, period. All crimes are acts of hate, essentially, is the most generalized version of that argument. But, Kyle, this goes specifically to the fact that the Georgia legislature has not for Two decades, almost, since the Supreme Court struck that first uh, law down, has refused to want to in any way codify in law and recognize the LGBT community as a community and certainly has not recognized its right to be protected as a enumerated class. Yeah, and I think it's disappointing. And I think, the, you know, this legis- these kind of laws show that a society does not approve of these crimes and does not approve of them, it does specifically does not approve of the message that they send to a larger vulnerable group, because we all know that the specific criminal acts, you know, nobody approves of those at all. Um, and I, I think it, I think it's something that needs to be done, and it needs to be the beginning of a larger conversation about discrimination, whether it relates to uh, being able to be fired from your job because you're gay, um, or other issues. I think that this conversation is long overdue. I think if if it were given the opportunity to be debated in the Senate, you'd have some very eloquent debates by some of our new women senators who who debated so eloquently on the abortion ban bill. But I think Rusty may have wanted to say that he was in favor of legislation about hate crimes That's instead correct. of saying hate crimes. <laughs> I, I am in oh, favor of the you. hate crime legislation. Thank you for that clarification. I just thought you might want that on the record. That's right. He it's is a, a mayor. Pretty, Every, yeah. You know, I could pick up the sa- some Sandy Springs news. Mailer, <laughs> yeah. Rusty yeah. Paul supports hate crimes. Yeah. Well, this is one of those issues you mentioned, you know, yeah. say, Rusty Paul being from Sandy Springs supporting this legislation. It's one of those issues you see suburban Republicans rallying behind. Wendell Willard was a sponsor of Sandy Springs. Megan Hansen uh, of Brookhaven was a sponsor. And Chuck of Stration's a Gwinnett Republican who's in one of those competitive districts. So 
in order to pre- protect those vulnerable incumbents, House leadership thought that this would be a good way to to, to kind of inoculate them. Well, another way. good thing uh, in terms of this to talk about, Rusty, is you have a large Jewish community mm-hmm. in Sandy yeah. Springs, and the Jewish yeah. community has for a very long time believed that a hate crimes law is necessary. At the Anti-Defamation League, where I've been transparent, I was uh, executive director for seven years, we tried to push this uh, bill into law. And again, it was the provision about LGBT uh, uh, as a protected class that always shot it down. But the Jewish community wants this up your way. Well, and, and, and while I understand the argument that you punish the act, not the motivation, I think motivation is important. Uh, and uh, should be considered. And uh, Representative Frustration's bill, I thought, was modest in the, from the point of view that it didn't add a lot of additional time and a lot of additional financial burden on whoever was convicted, but it did make a point that, uh, that we don't tolerate discrimination or hate based on your race, your gender, or any other factor. Uh, and uh, I thought that was an important point right. to be made. So, Efstration uh, will certainly work on this. Uh, this is the first year of a biennial, so no bill is dead until after the uh, session in 2020. Uh, so we'll have a chance to work it over the, the off-season. And you know who else always wanted it? Um, who's long advocate? Who's that, Greg? Law enforcement community. Law enfor- that's right. Law enforcement GBI is always, director always. Vernon Keenan was For one of the years, Vernon advocates. Keenan worked on this uh, legislation and uh, uh, tried hard but failed. Uh, can somebody please tell me what the heck is going on with the state's attempt to take over Hartsfield-Jackson Airport? You know, we already know that Ralston... The speaker has said over and over again, you know, until somebody shows me why we should do this, I don't think there's much reason to do it. And then we get this incredibly strange wrinkle where the legislation is now bundled. Is it still bundled, Greg, so that the the takeover now includes the provision giving Delta Airlines the fuel tax exemption they've long sought so that Delta is in an awkward position on this one? Is yeah, that and, still and, the and case? It, and it actually ends up raising the fuel tax yes, in other ways. Right. <laughs> That's the case until about 3 o'clock today where there's a House Rules Committee where it's going to be changed again. We hear that there could be negotiations between the city and the state for a, a some sort of compromise. Um, I was at the, the opening of the Norfolk Southern building, the new headquarters yesterday, which was a, a big deal in city-state relations. It, was, it required tremendous effort by both the state and the city to get that headquarters moved here. Both Kemp and Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms were there together. And it was kind of awkward in, at some at some points, uh, but she repeated her 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 desire to get this off the table, and she wants she wants Kemp to say that he opposes it, and the governor has not quite gone. That why? Far okay, so let's talk. Um, why, Rusty? You're the Republican right. at the table. I should turn. <laughs> this is something Kemp could resolve in a heart. All he has to do is say, you know what. Let's keep let's table that for the time being. Well, again, I think this is part this is more of a reflection of something we've talked about previously, which is the growing rural urban divide. Uh, the, the tax money that would be gained from taxing fuel would go to uh, infrastructure, the airport infrastructure, the small airports around the state. Uh, and uh, so the, the challenge here is, what is what what is Delta got to do to convince people that they are not totally wedded to the Atlanta market? The, the, the belief is that Delta can't go anywhere, so we can just hold them hostage. But they have other operations they can expand rather than in here. Yeah, that's not the challenge. Money's fungible. It can go anywhere. They can expand in Salt Lake. They can expand in other places. Mm-hmm. And, and if I'm Delta's leadership... And I'm not feeling that loved in my home state right now. I would be considering options. Well, you know, the old saying about whether you're going to heaven or hell, you have to change planes at Hartsfield. Delta could change that pretty quickly. And Hartsfield could no longer be in contest with Chicago for the the world's busiest airline. And, And if you want to be the state that remains number one for business, you don't mess around with one of your leading employers and leading economic engines for your state. Yeah, I don't... It it defies logic. From an editorial perspective, George Public Radio News is not out there to support and help the business community. I mean, that's just not our job. At the same time, Kyle... At a certain point, if you're Delta, you got to say, what exactly have we done these last few years? This fuel tax exemption has been the bully boy of so much going on at the state capitol that it gets to the point of almost comic absurdity. 
Well, and I think that Delta may ultimately end up having the final say here because a, a, an attempt by the state to take over the airport is going to have to go through the FAA. And it was a former Delta executive that got nominated to head the FAA. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I, if, you're, if, if he has any affinity for the company that he used to lead and he looks at how they're being treated in this state this year, even if he supported a takeover, he may object on the grounds of how they've been treated. And, and, there's, a, and there's a corollary to this. The rating agencies last year were very upset about the attack on Stockbridge, which was a relatively mm-hmm. small blip in the bond the world. The attempt to separate the, the, Eagles Landing as a city right. from Stockbridge. Right. And this one's major. And what they're saying is if the state continues to try and go in and seize local community assets, that adds a degree of risk for every city in the, and county in this state when they go to the bond market, and it has an impact on the state's bond rating, which their AAA rating is like the, the, the most sacred thing this state has. All right, let's, Gray, you want to make a last comment yeah, before we get to comment, a break? I want to try to explain why conservatives do have the sort of head uh, out for sure. Delta. And one of the reasons, because I've asked the same question many times, and this didn't happen in a vacuum, there were a lot of Republicans, especially in the Senate, who were upset about Delta's uh, proactive stance against the Religious Liberty Bill. It felt like time and time again, Delta had kind of swooped in and, and commented on and, and took stances against um, issues and, 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 and or prodded lawmakers to pass, let's say, a transportation infrastructure tax, things like that. And that got under some of their skins. So last year when the NRA Delta flap happened with uh, and, and Cagle, K- Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle then blocked the Delta um, well, tax break, um, that was not in, in, in a vacuum. I mean, that happened because of a reason. And they had backing to do that. You know what? We, I, I got to get to a break. But, Rusty, this brings up something that we hap- we sat around in the studio talking about before the show. I asked you and Melita whether or not the people were going to be able to get over their very high emotions, legislators, about the abortion uh, debate, that people might be so upset about this one way or the other that legislators were going to have a harder time working together. And you said... You've got to get look to the future. You've got to put past fights behind you. And isn't that really maybe the answer to what Greg is saying well, about conservatives who are still upset to. about Delta? Ultimately, you have to. You've got to move on, you know. And Delta probably ought to do a little bit of work with those folks and say, hey, look, we... We understand why you've been out of shape, but understand uh, why we feel like we have to engage in this. We well. got the last word before the break. <laughs> I, I think that, that Delta will prevail because that's the only logical way for the state to keep its high rankings for business. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of Political Rewind out of the way. As we do that, let me, let me remind you, Monday night, April 8th, we're going to be out in Athens, Georgia, on the campus of the University of Georgia to uh, do Political Rewind in front of a live audience. Greg Bluestein, a UGA alum, will be out there with us. So will his colleague Jim Galloway, another UGA alum, Charles Bullock, kind of the dean, the legendary dean of political science in uh, North Georgia, will be joining us for the show. And, Greg, we have just decided uh, in the last week, uh, Tom Faust, Robert Jimison, Audrey Haynes, who's on the show and in the political science department, uh, uh, too. We're going to focus on young people in politics because we expect to have a large uh, turnout among uh, students at UGA. We better. And there's no shortage of topics to talk about from Hope Scholarship to workforce development yeah. to getting involved politically. There will be exactly. a lot. Exactly. So go to the Political Rewind uh, website, politicalrewind.org. Uh, it's free to get in, but we're starting to really fill up. So if you want to join us, and we hope you do, uh, sign up at politicalrewind.org. We promise not to send you worthless email, uh, just an RSVP that you have a seat. We'll be right back. On the next Fresh Air, Natasha Lyonne talks about co-creating and starring in the Netflix series Russian Doll, in which her character keeps dying and coming back to life and doesn't understand why. Lyonne nearly died of drug-related problems in 2005, which led to her recovery. In 2014, she was nominated for an Emmy for her role in Orange is the New Black. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and gpbnews.org. I'm Kalina Bowler, host of the GPB podcast, The Credits. I've worked for years in Georgia's film and television industry. And believe me, Yollywood has changed so much. 
On my show, we go on set to meet the people working to bring art to life. Subscribe for free at gpb.org forward slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I've got a great panel today. Kyle Hayes, who oversees the uh, political, the Peach Pod podcast, uh, is with us from the NPR studios in Washington. Uh, Sandy Springs Mayor Rusty Paul, uh, Georgia Winlist founder Melita Easters, and Greg Bluestein from the AJC are with us. Okay, so Stacey Abrams was uh, in New York today making the rounds of all of the talk shows. She's right now out there promoting her book, but of course everyone is asking her what her plans are. Is she going to run for Senate? Is she going to be Joe Biden's running mate? Is she going to run for president? Uh, we caught up with uh, watching her on Andrea Mitchell's show on MSNBC a little bit afternoon. Mitchell asked her the question about whether she's been talking to Joe Biden about running as his vice presidential candidate from the start. Uh, here's what she said. I don't think you run in a primary for second place. Uh, if I join the presidential primary, it will be because I intend to become the nominee for president of the United States, and I haven't decided if that's what I intend to do. But I'm certainly open to the conversations because it signals that people are interested in the role that I can play. And I'm, it's not flattery, but it is, and it's deeply moving to me that people are excited about what I can offer. My responsibility is to make sure that whatever I run for, it's the right job, I'm the right person, and I'm doing it because that's the role that I should play in this moment in our history. Melita, she said a couple minutes later, we've been saying she's going to have to make a decision sooner. She's, her people have said, they initially said, well, by, mid, by late March, she'll just tell us whether she's going to run against David Perdue for Senate, whether she's going to wait and run against uh, Kemp in uh, 2022. On, the, on this show, she said, I don't really think you need to make a decision until June or maybe next September. Now, I don't know if she's talking about this, the presidential race, but at a certain point, she's freezing Democrats who are looking at 2020 for the U.S. Senate race, Melita. That is true. But I think <laughs> the world is Stacey Abrams' oyster right now. The agency which books her paid speeches um, she's like rises to the cream of the crop when you go to that agency. They they even have a point-counterpoint pairing of Stacey Abrams and Jeff Flake hmm. as, as a paid engagement. So there's, um, there's a lot she can do by keeping her options open. What if she does that whole... Um, wait and 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 support the democratic nominee and possibly maybe she doesn't want to be second potato as vice president but she might want to be attorney general or she might want to be secretary of state and if the democrats lose then she can still come back and run against brian kemp but feather her nest egg with paid speaking engagements in the meantime because if she runs for the u.s senate she has to stop taking paid speaking engagements. So, Rusty, that everything that Melita said makes absolute sense if you're Stacey Abrams. If, you're the, if you were the chairman of the Georgia Democratic Party right now, if you were Nakima Williams, I'm sure Nakima is thrilled that Stacey's getting all this attention, but you've got to find a candidate who can be viable, raise money, uh, start getting the word out to run against David Perdue. I, I, I've been in that position. Uh, I know what it's like when you're putting, trying to put together your team going into an election, and you, you can't do that because your star player can't decide which base that she wants to play on. And so the rest of the team is sitting in limbo uh, waiting to figure out what Stacy's going to do. Now, Stacy's got all the freedom in the world to do what she wants to do, but if but if she cares about her party, she needs to signal very quickly what her plans are so that they can start fielding the rest of their team. I think that limbo won't last that long. I think that June was talking about running for higher President. office if she doesn't want to run for Senate. Um, everything I've been told that it will be mid-April-ish yeah. when she announces whether she runs for Senate, and if it's a no... 
There are three high-profile candidates circling that race right now. One is frequent guest of the show, former Columbus Mayor Teresa Thomas. She'll be here on Friday. She'll be here on Friday. <laughs> well, and, and she's got pl- she has star power fundraising nationally. Teresa Tomlinson. Absolutely. She, those she, those women from Sweetbriar love her, and they love that she saved a, their school. Yeah, she's a Sweetbriar College uh, uh, graduate and, other, and did go to work on fundraising when the school was in serious trouble. And the other two are Sarah Riggs Amico and John Ossoff. Um, so we could well see any of those three plus more. Kyle, you've watched the uh, Stacey Abrams uh, phenomenon from your uh, uh, place in Washington. Um, so tell us about what it's like to see her from a distance. It's interesting. I, you know, <laughs> she is definitely in the national media much more now than she is. And then she was, you know, during the Georgia governor's race, even. And and my friends in D.C. ask me about her. She's spoken at events up here in D.C. Um, I do think, though, that this decision is a big one in terms of the Senate race, not only for her and her political future, but it's big for the Democratic Party's chances to take control of the Senate after the next election, because mm-hmm. Georgia is going to be in one of the groups of states where if a Democrat can flip that seat, it may flip control of the Senate. Which, of course, is why Chuck Schumer has been pushing, uh, we are told, uh, for Stacey to get in the race against David Perdue. But Rusty, David Perdue, you know, I do see a certain dilemma if I'm Stacey Abrams. You've got momentum. You've got tremendous attention from the country. You can raise unlimited money for your campaign. Uh, given your prominence right now, but what do you do? It, well, r- David Perdue is not going to be a pushover. No, he's he's polling extremely an well. In, campaign. Yeah, he's polling extremely well in the metro area right now, which kind of run, runs counter to uh, the expectations. I think. Uh, secondly, Stacy's got to ask herself, what do I want to do with my life? Being in the U.S. Senate is a lot different than being the chief executive of a state. <laughs> Excel Miller learned that. And, you know, you're one of 100. You're a superstar in that 100. But when you're the chief executive of a state, so you got you got to figure out what, what do you want to do. And, uh, but she needs to make that decision very quickly. The other thing is that historically more people ascend to the presidency from a governorship yeah. than from the U.S. Senate. Yeah, Senate candidates tend to fail as presidential candidates. Um, but, but you know, Melita, so we know David Perdue is going to fight a tough fight. Um, his number, he, Trump is, is far more, is underwater to a larger degree right now than, uh, than Purdue mm-hmm. is. Purdue's favorabilities are under 50%, but they're considerably higher than Trump himself. I think what Democrats say is the only reason Purdue's doing okay right now is we haven't had the chance to start spending money to tell people he's tied at the hip to Trump. Do you believe that's going to be effective no matter who the Democrat is? I believe it will be very effective, and I also believe that that Purdue has other vulnerabilities which the Democrats can bring to the forefront uh, during a vigorous campaign. So, okay, speaking of David Perdue, I had a chance to spend a few minutes talking to him. He was in Washington, uh, and we talked to him this morning. He actually talked both to me for Political Rewind and also to uh, Virginia Prescott, our host on uh, on Second Thought. And on Friday, Virginia's going to have a whole segment with David Perdue on uh, his feelings about what's happening with this emergency aid bill. Uh, so listen to her at 9 o'clock on Friday morning. But in the meantime, Greg... When Johnny Isaacson was with us, you were here last Wednesday, he made national news about his uh, uh, condemnation of the way Trump was talking about McCain. But he told us he thought they were on the verge of getting this relief package for Georgia, and now it's back up in the air. And I asked David Perdue whether or not maybe it's time to go to your friend, the president, and say, President Trump, stop worrying about Puerto Rico, let the Democrats have their way on Puerto Rico so that we can get the bill going. And here's what David Perdue said. Isn't it time for uh, cooler heads to prevail so that Puerto Rico gets what uh, the Democrats want them to get and Georgia farmers get what they need? Well, this is what the president is up against. He is responsible for the financial health of the United States, and Puerto Rico is not. And $91 million dollars uh, has already started flowing Puerto Rico's way. Now, let's put this in perspective. 
only $3 billion is in this package that we're talking about for Georgia farmers. So I believe that Georgia farmers and other farmers around the Southeast, there's some five or six states that have been affected by this just in this one disaster, let alone the fire victims in California, which get more than half of this package, by the way. They get more than farmers in the Southeast get out of this disaster relief package. So to put it in perspective, I believe the farmers in the Southeast are being held hostage by this partisan politics up here. And let me say again, the president has already taken the first step forward. Over $610 million incrementally are being added to this bill. Greg, the figures are hard to reconcile, but Democrats and many others believe that that Puerto Rico is not getting what it needs. Yeah, and um, tomorrow's going to be a big day on whether or not this is going to continue to to move forward. It's 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 a enormous day. And if you go down there and, and Senator Perdue has, and so Senator Isaacson to South Georgia and visit, they say there's nothing, there's little short of chaos down there because the entire market's kind of seized up. When I was at HUD, one of my responsibilities uh-huh. was to respond to disasters. I, I, my responsibility was, the first one was Hurricane Hugo, which hit Charleston. Then I had the San Francisco earthquake. Uh, I have never seen our country play politics with disaster relief before. And this is, if this is what our politics has come to, that we can't help people who are desperately hurting in, in wherever they are in our country, and Puerto Rico's part of our country, but, but South Georgia has been devastated and people are in abject pain and, and we can't recover and we're playing politics with disaster recovery. That's the most despicable thing I've ever seen in politics. I can absolutely agree. And I grew up in South Georgia. Oh, that's right. And the the devastation of pecan orchards, for example, just seeing those big noble trees twisted like toothpicks, it's it's an, a it's a big disaster for Georgia's agricultural economy. And politics needs to step out of the way and get the relief to the people who need it. All right, um, I got to make that the last word on today's show because we are completely out of time. That last voice you heard, Melita Easters, the founder and director of the Georgia Winlist, who says she is recruiting like crazy <laughs> pro-choice are. Democratic women to run. Mayor Rusty Paul of Sandy Springs. Before the show, Melita said to you, I haven't been to your new big performing arts center I said, by all means, you've got to get up there. It's an amazing place. Invitation to come. (laughs) Kyle Hayes joins us from NPR in Washington. He oversees Peach Pod. Kyle, we look forward to the next uh, edition of Peach Pod. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, great to be with you. Yeah, we'll have you back soon. And Greg Bluestein. Uh, We'll see you again next Wednesday for the post-signy-die edition of Political Rewind. The session is scheduled to end on Tuesday. Wednesday morning at 4 a.m. Well, right. You know, okay, we have enough time to mention that. For, For years, we always thought that at midnight, the session had to, by law, end. And it was always kind of fun, that rush to get to midnight. It turns out that was nonsense. It can go as long as yeah, you want. Yeah, it slipped to 12.15, then it slipped to 12.45. Who knows what it'll well, be Well, you remember when Denmark Gruber reached over and stopped yeah. the clock? <laughs> That's yes. right. One of the great, <laughs> great photos. The iconic photograph. <laughs> That's exactly right. All right. So, Sunny Die, uh, scheduled for next Tuesday. We're going to have a special show that day. Uh, Tom Faust has been working with the folks down at the Capitol so that we can do our show live from the Georgia State Capitol as legislators rush to get to the end of the session. Um, But we're back again on Friday when uh, Teresa Tomlinson will be here. So will Eric Tannenblatt. And uh, we've got some other ideas for the Friday show that we'll talk about when we get there. Uh, In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for listening today. See you again Friday at 2.